Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Avigan. This is Dave O'Leary. And today we're actually going to be taking a look at two records. Uh, we're going to take a quick look at the Kiss Best of album, Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits, because it actually contains a couple new tracks and some variations that we'll touch on. And then we'll be taking a look at the longest Kiss album, Hot in the Shade, where Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley go back to self-producing themselves, and they give us 15 tracks, um, an album that's been criticized in terms of the production, uh, because instead of going into a new studio to begin recording afresh, uh, it's an album that utilizes some of the tracks from the demos that they started recording at Fortress Studios. Uh, but I think uh, we'll get into all that later. First, let's talk about smashes, thrashes, and hits. Uh, first new song, Let's Put the X in Sex. Uh, as I mentioned before in our pre-conversation, this is where uh, I am dishonorably discharged from the Kiss Army as I cannot... I couldn't with even a straight face look at the song and even take them seriously. Like I, the more I listened to it, the more I was like, this is someone that doesn't even really understand what's sexy. You know what I mean? And he's supposedly writing something about uh, like, this is supposed to be some sort of euphemism for pornography. I couldn't, I mean, the more I listened to it because I kept thinking this song is going to have those classic kiss triple innuendos that x is going to mean something about finding a treasure on a pirate map or something else and it was not it was i mean it is one of my least favorite not least favorite it is my least favorite kiss song i mean because it made me embarrassed to be a kiss fan when it came out now this is also the time it's 88 i'm in high school i'm full-blown you know uh, at least listening to college radio all the time. I'm not, I'm not going to be pretentious and say I'm a full-blown punk rocker, but I'm now not really listening to metal anymore. I'm not listening to, uh, and Kiss is that band that I still have that soft spot in, for, in my heart. So I'm like, okay. But even in terms of metal, I'm starting to listen to like, th you know, uh, thrash metal. You know, I remember uh, uh, RCT, um, the CMU radio station, used to have a metal show that ran from three to six every afternoon on Sunday. I would audio tape it because I knew there was no way I could play it loud in my bedroom on Sunday afternoon with my parents around. And I would listen to the audio tape going to and from school on the bus with headphones. And that introduced me to all the new sort of um, speed and thrash metal that was out there. Um, so... Let's put the X in sex is honestly the thing where I was like, kiss his ass out, I'm done. You know what I mean? I just, I, I couldn't be a fan anymore after that. I mean, I was still a fan of the older stuff, but I was like, I'm not following them anymore. They're not, you know, this is ridiculous that this is being re released as a single. Now that changes a little bit with Hot in the Shade comes back and I sort of, um, sort of bring, you know, there's stuff on that album that's definitely still good. Yeah, I mean, it's a cheese ball song for sure. I mean, it owes a lot to 
Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. Um, but it's a hell of an earworm, too. Like, to this day, I find myself singing it to myself at random times. Um, you know, Paul Stanley's explanation about the double meaning, you know, literally, let's put the X in sex, the two bodies, you know, was that the song was supposed to be about putting the mystery back in sex. Of course, there is no X in the word mystery, so that doesn't completely hold water. But, you know, okay. Um there's it's it's interesting uh that this is not my least favorite kiss song by any means but i mean it's it's certainly it's certainly of its era um it's it's interesting there's an extended remix of this song that uh is available um but wh how about you guys what, what were your impressions i i have to agree with john i hate it i, I think it was the at that point in time being a fan now you guys i hadn't joined you on previous podcasts but i became a fan 1974 with hot in hell with hotter than hell wow. this to me was you know read my body to me and bang bang you were bad enough and it's just like paul wanted to push it as far as he could to try to take a fan like me of their older material kiss alive all those things and really push me to the wayside it, he, he th that song almost single-handedly made me give up on the band that's how badly i disliked that song all right. <laughs> you you honestly couldn't say you were a Kiss fan and have that song on the radio or being played. I think there, there was a video for it on MTV. There was a video point, for right? it, and I remember like even that was ridiculous. And I was like, oh, I'm not I'm not a Kiss fan. <laughs> like I yeah. can't justify there was that. A, that you know, there I mean? was even a lawsuit, right? Because they they show the side of a building as they're panning up to see the girls, and 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 the the company that owned the building didn't want to be associated with the video. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and the video had probably some of the most unattractive women that you would ever want to see in a video. Um, even back to the songs, I mean, come on. You, think about how many other bands that were out at the time. You had Guns N' Roses, Kicks, all these other bands that were, you know, writing more like, you know, classic rock that we, that we all grew up with. And this is what our favorite band is putting out. And these are songs that are co-written by Desmond Child. I mean, the, you know, the guy was capable of writing so many great songs. And this is what, you know, they came up with for, you know, to lead off, you know, this record. I, I just didn't get it. I, I thought, you know, it, it's it's silly and I, I I didn't buy it. But also too, on you know the concept of, of the rest of the record, you know, I'm not a big fan of compilation records, uh, particularly you know records where they remix things. Uh, for example, I think ZZ Top released something uh, around well, a few years later. It's called Six Pack, and it was a re-release remix of their first six studio records. It had a lot of reverb on the drums, and you know sometimes you don't need to revisit things and remix things. Uh, to the point too where you know they list the years that you know the, the songs came out in the liner notes um of the album but you know the, some of these mixes sound nothing like what they sounded like in the years that they list so i i don't know that's what i was wondering yeah yeah they did remix them a yeah lot. it's all heavily There's... remixed they 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 particularly um gated the snares mm -hmm. on all these tracks uh, which means that the classic intro to rock and roll all night where you hear the the tom fill in the beginning is almost completely obliterated it just sounds like kick snare kick snare yep. um you know yeah. i love it loud is particularly neutered there's it's missing all the bottom end that the drums had um mm -hmm. here's something interesting i just found it out in research today um there is an alternate baseline on rock and roll all night uh, apparently, when they were going to do this remix, they found 
uh, different version of, of the bass that Gene had recorded be before he came up with the kind of stepping uh, part. So for whatever reason, it's a quick yeah, they, used, they used the non-walking bass version of this song. From the demo. Um, is, maybe they pulled it, it from, from the demo. It was, it was, the idea was lifted from the original demos. So when he okay. cut the track the first uh, time, he went with the way he played it on the demo. And, yeah. and obviously it evolved from there during the, during the production of Dress to Kill and, and you know, it became the baseline we know and love. But you're absolutely right. And that's a really good catch on your part there, brother. Well, I can't take credit for it. There's a, there's a great website I found today called Axology Extended uh, WordPress, uh, where this guy writes some pretty in-depth uh, audio uh, essays about KISS stuff. And he was the one that pointed it out. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Obviously, there's also, um, you know, extended fades on some of these songs like Love Gun and Deuce, where you can hear a little bit more of the lead guitar at the end. Um, they recorded a version of Beth with Eric Carr on vocals, which I know managed to piss off a lot of people. Piss off yeah. everybody, yeah. Um, you know, they finally throw Eric a bone and it's like, you're going to sing Peter's signature song. That does seem misguided. Um, and, uh, and then there's one more song, which as much as you guys, I'm feeling your <laughs> hatred for Let's Put the X in Sex. I don't completely share it, but I understand it. But I have to say that You Make Me Rock Hard is probably right up there with Turn On The Night for my least favorite Kiss song of all time. Because it's it's such a generic paint-by-numbers song. Um, you know, it's mm. like if you had an AI computer write the prototypical <laughs> Kiss song. I mean, it, it, and, and the pun itself, You Make Me Rock Hard, I found an interview where Diane Warren actually said, I think I came up with that. Um, and, you know, oh, yeah. Mike, you and I have joked about the fact that she's such a tremendous songwriter. And, yeah. you know, like, what was the conversation like where, did, you know, do you have any scraps in the in the wastebasket for song ideas that maybe we could pick up and use? I mean, it just it just seems like, you know, if these are the two songs that they're going to do for the best of album. But the thing sold. <laughs> well, it did sell. It didn't sell on the strength of these two songs, these two new songs. You know, and no. I remember, you know, I remember, um, you know, related note about, you know, his songwriting. I remember seeing an interview with, um, there's a documentary on Velvet, Velvet Revolver. I mean, when they were getting together, they were trying out singers. And one of the singers, uh, they were like, hey, here's some tracks, come up with some lyrics. And he came up with a lyric. And this is, you know, when Velvet Revolver came out in 2004. You know, and the guy's writing, you know, a song called Stripper Girl. You know, and the guys in Velvet Revolver were saying, well, you know, I wouldn't write a song like Stripper Girl, you know, back in 1984, you know, so right. this, it just, I, yeah, where they were going with this, I have no idea. I mean, sure, maybe they're trying to compete with a computer, you know, be on a level with Bon Jovi, but, uh, you know, because there's definitely some sounds on like, let's put the X and sex to sound like, you know, talk box or maybe, you know, like a living on a prayer kind of thing, but I don't know. Sounds like again, sixth bass, by the way, too. It doesn't sound like real live bass. No, no. no that's I, a synth to me. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. These songs did not, you know, make me enjoy this album anymore. <laughs> Remarkable that there's a video for "You Make Me Rock Hard." I mean, uh, like out of all the Kiss songs that they could have done videos for, it's and it's a forgettable video for that. At that, yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't they suddenly shoot a video for one of their older songs just because it, you know, it didn't exist before? Like, take "Love Gun" and shoot a video to that. Oh. Well, 
No, but no, no, but like they did with uh, Kiss Exposed, they did a video for Rock and Roll All Night, incorporated footage from you know various eras of the band, and, yeah, and that yeah. worked. You know, yeah, they got a lot of play. So smashes, thrashes, and hits comes out. Remarkably, depending on who you believe, it it sells double platinum. You know, maybe because there wasn't a greatest hits available in the states that actually covered both the seventies and the eighties, um, and. Hmm. Paul goes on a solo tour with Bob Kulik uh, on lead guitar and Eric Singer on drums. And Mike and I go see that tour. So Mike and I attended at the Metropole, I think that summer, right? And we were right up at the front. We were like, literally there was a single body in front of us and then there was us. And uh, that was an amazing tour. I mean, if you see the bootlegs, you can kind of get a sense of the energy. Um, you know, we were talking last week about uh, what happened to the band where they were doing these really short uh, sets and and then they, they reinvigorated themselves, they got hungry again, and the Hot in the Shade tour was a whole other ball game. I think part of the missing link is this 89 uh, Paul Stanley solo tour, because I yeah. think, you know, it, 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 it reinvigorated him at least. And that was the first time that we heard a song that would appear on Hot in the Shade. Um, so perhaps it's time to segue to that album. Interesting to point out too, though, uh, during the segue, um, I, I read somewhere that where there was discussion about touring behind Smashes, um, you know, but that, you know, I guess kind of, you know, fell by the wayside and, you know, here we go into to Hot in the Shade. Yeah, which is probably why Paul Stanley just decided to do the solo tour thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so KISS starts off recording some demos in Fortress Studios. Um, Bruce Kulik says that the band had demo-itis, that they liked the feel of some of these songs. They didn't want to re-record them from scratch. Of course, it also saved them some money because uh, Fortress Studios was a lot cheaper than, say, you know, Record Plant or any of the places they were normally used to going. Um, but my opinion about this album overall is, is I think of Kiss as a giant ship, right? This was a signal that they were changing direction of the ship and changing it in the right direction. Um, I think that Gene was starting to get his head back in the game. You know, all of his songs are it never less than at least interesting musically and or lyrically, if not great songs in and of themselves. Um, they were they were experimenting with a lot of different feels um, in, in terms of the songs. I would say that if you strip away the filler on this album, the four or five tracks that, you know, really had it out, it's almost a concept album. Um, you know, and, and that there's some influences here that, that we haven't seen before. There's uh, kind of a, a Broadway musical influence going on in a couple of these tracks, too, that I think is really kind of, kind of interesting. Um, but what are your general thoughts about the album? I find it to be one of Kiss's best cover albums. I mean, they seem to be taking information from all <laughs> everywhere. And they're... <laughs> 
And again, you know what I mean? Like there's songs in here that are literally just songs that I've heard. I mean, there's even one here that I swear to God bites from uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart. Um, but that being said, and I know I'm, I'm, be, I'm being cynical or trying to be funny, there's some killer songs on here um, that I really like. And I guess I could see, huh, interesting that you say it's sort of a concept album. Huh. Now I'm starting to see it. Now I'm starting to put it together. But you you need to carry that thought through because I kind of actually Okay, like so my thought about it being a concept album is this. For the first time, they're talking about being young guys without a pot to piss in, trying to realize their dreams while they have no money and they're dreaming of success and they're young and they're trying to make it in the cold-hearted city and beat the odds and... Okay, that's how I bought it I too, mean, yeah. There are so many references on this album to money and not having money and the potential that having money could uh, help them achieve their dreams, you know, that it's, it's, there's almost like a through line to the entire story through Betrayed and Silver Spoon and Little Caesar and The Street Giveth and The Street Taketh Away. You know, we'll get into all the tracks, but yeah, yeah that was that's kind of what I get out of it. Well, go ahead. We'll start with Rise to It. Okay. Did you, Mike and Dave, did you have anything you wanted to say generally about the album? No, it's a, that's an interesting perspective. It makes, you know, your perspective makes me want to go back and listen to the album again with that, with that lens. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And I, I can get behind that. And I can support that. I mean, it's almost like, you know. Yeah, I can totally buy that. Yeah. Now, how much of that is influenced by Desmond Child, though? I mean, or them trying to build a mythology around themselves? Well, I don't know. Let's keep talking about it. I kind of dig that. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that depends because, you know, there were different people involved in different songs that might, you know, sort of tie into that concept. So, you know, what, there wasn't a consistent, you know, uh, thread of, of another songwriter that was involved with the band among the songs that Dave's kind of mentioning. So, yeah. All right. Let's do it track by track. Rise to it. The first single. Actually, no, the s third single. I like it. I mean, again, it's a nice little rocker of, um, you know, that starts the thing and it's a little more, it's sort of a love song or whatever, uh, instead of the usual, like, we're going to make it kind of thing that he gives in most of his songs or whatever. I'm looking at the lyrics again. Um, I mean, obviously it's an innuendo for, again, his <laughs> penis, but it can be like a, uh, it can, you know, but it also can be, you know, we're going to, we're going to step up our game here and we're going to rise to the challenge whether that also be like the challenge of gaining your love, but also the challenge of keeping our fans happy or giving you what you want. You know what I mean? Like being the tough, great band that we've always been, you know, and which is sort of the song they open up a lot of their albums with. Um, at least that's my, my take on it. It's a good rocker too. I mean, again, there's nothing I got any problem with, you know, it's a good song. I find myself singing it, you know, or earworming it uh, a lot. Yeah, it's it's a great song, and, and an interesting point too. Um, in terms of first, I think this is the first time that we've heard slide guitar playing on a Kiss record, right? Yes, mm -hmm. and there's a nice yeah. Delta blues sounding opening slide guitar acapella part there. That I'm not gonna lie, I found that yeah, cheesy. Yeah, I thought sound, so too. But... I thought it was a little bit of a rip, um, a recent rip to Cinderella. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, that's what I thought that's too. Interest blues. Yeah. Yep. For sure. 
Yeah, it just seems kind of generic. It's like, oh, we've got the blues in us too, because we're rock and roll. Yeah, know? but how many bands of this, you know, uh, you know, not Kiss was of that era, but how many bands around that time were sort of lashing onto the blues? And you know, this is you know our white boy version of the blues and white you know, there's right. Yeah, I mean, you name, yeah, a million <laughs> bands. White snake, much. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But I think it's a great opener. Um, I think there's a couple things I find interesting musically. Uh, the verse definitely reminded me of the breakdown in Bon Jovi's In and Out of Love, mm. you know, in terms of chord changes. But also, uh, this just hit me this week, the, the chorus kind of reminds me of uh, Motley Crue's Wild Side, because I think this is a, this is a song that's an open G tuning. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the riffs are really similar to the da 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 You know, it's, uh, it, to me, it, you know, it, that just hit me this week that, oh, okay, there's a similarity there. Um, but still, it's a great opening track, and and they played it quite a bit on the tour, if not all the way through the tour. And uh, you know, it, it you know it, it works. You know, from this moment on, when I when I got the record, I thought, okay, you know, they're, they're back to being Kiss as 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 we knew it. Yeah, I mean, the the pun obviously, I'm going to rise to the occasion, and then the literal sexual metaphor. Um, I always thought that this song missed an opportunity to be like the background music for a Cialis commercial, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's interesting that you point out Motley Crue's Wild Side. I find a lot of influence from Theater of Pain in this album. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe because that's an album that I listened to a lot of as a kid, you know what I mean? So I can hear a lot of that in this thing. So that's funny that you said that because there's one song in here that feels almost exactly like so that it could have been on Theater yeah. of Pain. Okay. Yeah. And I can, we'll get to it, but I I can hear some Motley Crue from other eras on this album too. They were definitely cool. a band that Kiss was aware of uh, on a lot of levels. So, all right. Moving on to a song co-written by future Kiss member Tommy Thayer, Betrayed. I like that. I like Betrayed. To me, Gene had kind of, you know, after Lick It Up, for me, Gene kind of started to, my personal taste, lost the script a little bit. Yes. And, you know, and this was one song when I heard it, I thought, you know, all right. Um, there's an edge to this song. There's an angst to this song. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's a, there, there's something to me that reminded me of, of older Gene Simmons, certainly back to creatures, lick it up, maybe a little bit before that. But I just found Gene was the one that was really letting me down throughout the 80s with the songwriting. And yes. I think for me, Betrayed was a beginning for him to return back to his, his original form of what I liked. You know, the parasites watching you, Betrayed is all to me, I liked, I liked the theme of the song. I liked the song in general. Is it his best song? No, but I, I really thought to me uh, it was a, it was a song that made me pay attention to maybe Gene is not calling it in on this record. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a song that's probably stronger lyrically than it is musically. Yeah, um, sure. it's not that really? memorable musically, but um, yeah, and and I think it's interesting too that there's kind of a, a duality about the song that, and on one hand, it's talking about how you know that that feeling that you feel when you're completely isolated and alienated and on your own, and you feel betrayed by other people or the world, um, and that has a special place in my heart because, as John pointed out earlier, 
we had just graduated high school and I had moved out of town and gone off to college in a totally alien world where I didn't know anybody I, from Adam, you know, so I was feeling all of those things. I think Kiss has always kind of had their finger on the pulse of the general zeitgeist of their fans and what point they are at in life. Um, but, but also interesting is that there's not this self-pity kind of thing that you sometimes get with, say, Black Sabbath, you know, where, yes, Gene's saying, of course you feel betrayed because nobody gives a fuck about you. But he's also <laughs> saying, but you know what? Everybody feels that. And you're not crucified. So there's still hope and there's still a chance. So don't make that big a deal out of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't like the song that much. I mean, I, I started to do a little game when I would listen to it of checking off all the cliches in it. But there's one there's one verse, which is stone cold and all alone and you're wearing everything you own. They bury your flesh and strip your soul, but underneath you got a heart of gold. Okay, so that's got, that's a well put together verse. Interesting you mentioned that lyric, heart of gold being a callback to... Uh, his other song. on the eighth day right mm -hmm. yeah they right yeah, they can't rape a heart or of gold. your virgin soul or your treasures gold or whatever um but it doesn't again the song felt too cliche too cliched for me because the music didn't stand out enough for me to really like it so i i took it almost as filler so i i did not like it i know i you have softened my view towards it um david and david but I still didn't. I still don't like it very much. I just felt like it was just sort of a cliche filler. Let's rush through this song. You're making me sort of get a better understanding of what it's about, but I just felt like it was the same. I mean, it's just lyric after lyric that's cliche after cliche. All alone, far from home, feeling cold as stone. Don't give up, don't give in. Lice a bitch and you lose or win. I mean, come on, man. Like. You can write that, you know, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something like that one verse there stands out. And I feel like, why couldn't he have just written three more like that? But none but. of this is stuff that he said before. I mean, the thing that bothers mm -hmm. me about the, the gene writing in the 80s is he's re, not only is it cliche, but he's regurgitating sexual cliches that he's used before, you know, and it's just like, you know, come on, like, it, I mean, this may not be the most original lyric, but it's a topic that he's never touched on before. And it's not logging the fireplace. Right. <laughs> no, that it is not. <laughs> you know, and to David's point too about how it, it, it sort of harkens back to, you know, creatures and, and, uh, and lick it up. Uh, definitely that breakdown uh, before the solo with that sort of, you know, cascading, uh, descending uh, chromatic riff yep. for sure sounds like something that, that would have been on creatures. It's a great riff uh -huh. and a great lead into the solo. But again, we, we spoke before about how sometimes their songs their verses, you know, are, are, are stronger than when you get to the chorus and the chorus doesn't really pay off, you know, but I think it's, you know, the bottom line to, to John's point is, you know, it's definitely a song where he's trying to say, you know, you're not, you, you know, as, as tough as life is, it's, it's not the end. You, you can get through it. Um, right. But interesting point too about the chorus of this song, they do a lot of like that in the, you know, where choruses are like in the round in a way, like they kind of repeat the, the lyrics in a way to almost an, an annoying point. You got the betray, betray. It's like it's it's like that layered thing. Right. If there's something that I don't like about this song, it would be the, their their approach to the to the uh, the stacking of the vocals in the chorus. I could see that. You know, it's funny though. I mean, it, not only is it saying yes, you feel this way and and it sucks, but everybody feels this way. It's not that bad. He's even making the point that even if you win the game of life, even if you're successful and a superstar, 
you're still going to have bad days. You're still going to have problems. Mm -hmm. Life's a bitch if you lose or win. So there's no point in being pissed off all the time about that because then you're just making it worse. You know, so in a yeah. sense, it's, it's, it's kind of a complex song lyrically. Yeah, and to that point too, you know, Gene, you know, no matter, in tons of interviews, has always said, listen, every day above ground is a good day. And, you know, I, I think of that, you know, so many times during the week and that gets me through so many things and he's right. Yeah. Better to be alive, you know, my goodness. All right, exactly. So coming on to the first single from the album, a song that's been covered by a number of artists, including Ace Frehley <laughs> around this time on the Trouble Walking album, um, that Mike and I heard first uh, on the Paul Stanley 89 solo tour. And, you know, it's interesting. Context is really everything because when Paul Stanley says to you, hey, do you guys want to hear a new song that, you know, Kiss is going to do that we've never played before? Your response is, yeah, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that was really cool. Um, but what are your thoughts about the song itself? All right, okay. It's one of my favorites on the album. I know that it's a it's a total um, Bon Jovi rip, and I think it's written by Desmond Child, who wrote songs for Bon Jovi. Um, it's not even as like, uh, but it has that hook that you know the na 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 na. Hey, which makes it a good song because it has a hook. Like betrayal doesn't have a hook to it. Nothing that grabs you. Whereas hide your heart has that you know that sing along hook to it and the and the even the phrase hide your heart is kind of clever and pretty pretty interesting um, and I, I you know and I know that it's them trying to hit the again like I said it's the best Kiss cover album they're trying to get to the Bon Jovi market but it's not a bad song you know what I mean I mean I like the lyrical content I like you know that it tells a story you know it's not it's definitely not Black Diamond but it's still you know an interesting. Uh, thing to it and they're again trying something new um, and and like I said that hook in the well, course. It's the theme the West Side Story 1989 um, yeah you Good know point. yeah but I, I like the song me personally I you know Dave you and I were speaking last week I had the demo that and Sword and Stone pretty quickly after the the crazy night sessions were were completed and I remember, as you and I were sharing some stories, I, when I met Gene at the grand opening of his of his Simmons Records party, we actually did talk about that song and why it wasn't used. And you know, I didn't know the backstory. I just learned something about you know that perhaps it was written for somebody like Bon Jovi. But you know, I, I, you know, there's something about that song. I think you you said before a couple of you guys said earworm. It's an earworm song to me. You know, is it contrived? A little cliche? Is it really reaching for the Bon Jovi audience? Is it the theme of a West Side, you know, West Side Story, 1989? Absolutely, but there's something about that song that I just think is uh, it, where Paul hits the mark. I think his vocals are fantastic on that, by the way, as well. And yeah. I do like Bruce Kulick's guitar work on that. Not the not the most difficult solo solo to pull off, but it's it's a well phrased solo. I I actually like it. I think it's a, it's a, it's one of his better solos on that record, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Bruce's guitar work because just in general on this album, he's playing a lot slower, a mm -hmm. lot bluesier, um, and kind of using the guitar, you know, just like with single notes and harmonics, uh, almost in place of solos sometimes, just adding textures. 
um, which is interesting because it's something that they hadn't really done before. Um, it's a solo and, you can sing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. But yeah, which is what you can say about just about every one of Ace Frehley's solos, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, musically, it, it kind of, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, but the verses, they owe a little bit to Strutter, right? I mean. 100%. Yeah. 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 Um, a lot of the chord changes do too. Yeah. yeah. Um, the one thing, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that you like that hook, because if I could change one thing about this song, <laughs> it would be. But you don't like that? No, no, no. no, no I don't like that. I think they should have just made that a guitar part you know, maybe a harmonized guitar part or something, or dropped it. Like, I don't think you need it. I mean, it doesn't... T it I don't know, that's what makes me sing along to it when I hear it. <laughs> so, well, yeah, but I hear... Okay. But think about this, though. It's, it's essentially the, 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 the chorus melody. So you don't really need it. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just duplicative of what the chorus melody is. And also, too, I think to Dave's point, um, you know, because one of the things, you know, like he said about, you know, Paul's going to introduce a new song, you know, The Kiss is never, you know, they're going to put on the record and it's never been heard live. We're excited for that. He starts, you know, the 89, uh, you know, solo tour, you're playing this song where you've got to sing and do the call and response with that, that sort of melody. You know, it's not the strongest way to present a new song where you have to sing a melody back to Paul that you've never heard before, you know, and then all of a sudden here comes a song, you know, that to me, it, it, Definitely, it's to me. I, I agree, Dave. It's definitely sort of the, the weak link of the song. It might be unnecessary, but it is catchy, and you know, and I'm sure a lot of us walk away, you know, humming that, you know, you know, from day to day. But it's it's probably you know the, the most unnecessary part of the song because the chorus, you know, takes care of that anyways. Agreed. <laughs> okay. Wow, I'm the black sheep. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I think no. I'm agreeing with you. I, I honestly say, as all of us are songwriters, right? Yeah. And let's be honest, if yeah. any one of us wrote that song, would we walk away from that song happy? Just the way it was. Hell before. yes. Hell yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, yeah, that yeah, exactly. is a testament to the song. If any, <laughs> of all of us, the songwriters would say, hey, we just recorded that today. We wrote it and recorded it as it was, as it was recorded, that we'd all be very happy with our work. I mean, that's a hell of a compliment. Yes. True. Right. I could probably have written Betrayed, but I wouldn't have written such a book. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, That's great. No, I'm serious. I mean, there's songs. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> which, which is an important thing to keep in mind, really, is like as much as we may criticize some of these songs, the worst of some of these songs would be the best songs that a lot of other bands have ever done, period. Yeah, and it also it, yeah, it also yeah, exactly yeah. it also shows that we you know sort of hold the band to a high level of scrutiny, you know, and you know in the best way. Yeah, in the best way. Right, and and again, like yeah, I mean, like I said, I I left the Kiss Army and I'm back. You know what I mean? As as of 2000 or whatever. No, 98. Whenever I saw it with you, Dave, 97, 98 or whatever, I was back in. Um, but yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I I could never write this stuff. You know, I mean, they have. They not only do they have that creative energy, they have the resources is resources to do it, but they also um, have practiced their craft to a point where they know how to do it. You know, I, I talked about it last time, the Kiss Blender. They know how to write a good song, and these are all good songs. You know, well, think about this too. With with this song, we mentioned that other artists have you know had recorded around the same time. I mean, Robin Beck, uh, Ace Frehley, apparently Molly Hatchett did a version. You know, but none of those really made a dent, you know, in terms of radio play. Whereas, you know, this was like a, a you know, a, a, in heavy rotation on MTV as a video, 
you know, so, you know, thank goodness that in a way that, you know, the Kiss were like, you know, at the top of their game when it came to the fact that you've got a song that is in, in play by three other artists at the same time. Bonnie Tyler too, right? Uh, it, yes, yes. I, want, I once heard the song described as the hit that refuses to be a hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, moving on. Um, this is the first song that I would say is kind of filler. Um, you know, Prisoner of Love. I mean, it's got musically, I think it's rather interesting. It's got a shuffle feel, which Kiss doesn't do very often. Um, and, you know, it's got kind of a cool Motown influence, but, you know, mm -hmm. lyrically, is it really all that memorable? You know, would I miss it if it wasn't in existence? Probably not. Well, Gene seems to take a very large sadomasochistic approach to love in <laughs> no, general. True. So no. by the by the tenth or eleventh song where he's talking about things in chains and you know that kind of stuff, I tend to yeah. And, and I love the opening riff. There's a very cool riff that goes and the, and his vocal in it is nice and clean and smooth. But again, it doesn't really grab me either. That's funny. I'd heard that shuffle thing as well, and I had to go back and listen to, or I read it somewhere. No, but apparently the, the shuffle wasn't uh, part of the original plan. I think it was uh, a later edition, right? Yeah, I think that might have been Bruce's influence. No, I, I think. Well, no, I think it was Bruce that you know didn't want it to be a shuffle. Oh, really? Right? Okay, I got yeah. that wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but this is you know I think Dave you had mentioned you know there if you take away some of the you know the the, the songs that really aren't the strongest. I think one of my criticisms, of, 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 you know, if I want to call it criticism, of this record is it's, yes, it is the longest record they put out, but it is in a lot of ways too long. You, know, you can have too many songs on a record and it dilutes what's, what's happening there. I don't really think um, that this fits into, you know, Dave, you know, your, your notion of the concept of the record. And I, I could do without this song on the record. It's not a bad song, but, you know, it's catchy as all hell, but I just don't, I don't, it's not one of my favorite songs on the record. And I, I would never expect him to play it live either, you know, as a fan listening to the record saying, God, I want to hear that song live. No. Is this song that would have fit nicely somewhere on the vault? Yeah. 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 Right? You yeah. know, as a, as a thing, you go, oh, he, that's how he was writing at the time. And that was kind of in, you know, where he, his head was at that time in 1987, 88, 89. Oh, that's cool. You know, as a completist, that's a cool demo. But on the record, no, I, I can live without it. In some ways, this song and some other songs in this record kind of remind me a little bit. There was a band called Little Caesar that was covering some yeah. Motown songs like Chain of Fools. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. it's almost like they were aware of that kind of thing. And they were like, hey, we like Motown. We could do something similar to that. Um, I saw Gene talk about um, what Kiss was going to be up to right before this album came out at the Concrete Heavy Metal Foundations Forum convention in Los Angeles. Mm. And they asked him like, what's the next KISS record gonna be like? And he said, uh, it's definitely gonna be heavier than Crazy Nights. He goes, but you know, we're not gonna suddenly become Metallica. So, you know, it was a conscious decision that they wanted to make this album heavier, but they also, you know, knew that that was also within certain parameters. But didn't Little Caesar open for Kiss in, 80, in 88, 89? So, I mean, on the, on the Hot in the Shade tour or something like that? Weren't they one of the opening bands at some point? For sure. On, on the later end of it, yeah. Uh, particularly, um, I saw them, it was Kiss, uh, Slaughter, and Little Caesar. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm playing in a band with one of the guitar players from Little Caesar right now, Lauren Molinar. Uh, we're in a band uh, that's called uh, Slam Denises. 
And uh, I, I've spoken to Lauren about, you know, him playing in Pittsburgh. And he said that when they played uh, on that tour, Pittsburgh was one of the best shows that they, they had ever played. He, he felt mm. like the audience reaction was super strong. And I remember seeing him. He was, you know, he was a powerhouse of a guitar player. He still is. Uh, but yeah, for sure. They were on this, on this tour yeah, uh, for quite a bit. Uh, of, yeah, I'm, I'm saying for sure that the, the, the guys were definitely aware of who they were. You know, that, yeah, that first yeah. album from Little Caesar was very strong, by the way. As a yeah. side note. Yeah. yeah. But funny point musically, though, is that the solo section goes to F sharp minor. Like, any, I mean, how many times do you have to have a guitar solo section that goes to F sharp minor? Like, right. once, talk about cliches. You know, that is one of them. You know? Well, where does it go to F sharp minor from? There's the, in the, the riff, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the, the buildup, you know, after the, in the solo section, you know. Okay, but what key is it in before it goes to F sharp minor? Well, it's in a, I think it's in F sharp major. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, it, yeah, but then it goes like F sharp minor for the solo section. Okay. Yeah, which is interesting and all, but you know, at the same time, you know, I mean, if you want to sound heavy, everybody plays in F sharp minor. You know, it's like the, the Randy Rhodes, you know, um, Crazy Train or you know, blah blah blah. Right. It's right. been it's been done. You know, but yeah. Okay. Next up, we have one of the most hated songs in the KISS catalog. I know it's a lot of people's least favorite song. I actually like this song. Maybe it's because I'm the son of a couple of English teachers. So any song <laughs> that manages to make a vastly extended metaphor about reading, uh, you know, <laughs> and sex is kind of cool to me. I don't know. <laughs> I hear you. I, I, it's, it's my favorite Def Leppard song, um, but it's got. A, I, I mean, it's fine. Whatever. I like the the drum. The drum opening is kind of neat with the little it, like triangles or whatever the little things that he's adding in there. It's a little funkier. But then I've also heard that this is just straight up a drum machine. Anyway, um, I well, I don't a, think it's a drum machine. I think some of the drums on this album are electronic drums. Uh, that that oh, Eric okay. played and they All never right. replaced with real drums. And I'm, I, that's a good question. Like if you guys have been able to figure out which drums on this album are real, which are not, I would say this song in particular sounds like it's uh, either a drum machine or electronic drums. Okay, yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, it's it's definitely, it's um, it's catchy and it's big and it's fun and it's, you know what I mean? It's, I like it. I, 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 don't, I don't hate it as much as everybody hates it. Can I ask a question? Can I ask a question? Uh, this is, uh, I think, the other co-write, uh, other than Rise, two of those written uh, with Bob Halligan. Who was Bob Halligan? Bob Halligan was an up-and-coming writer-ish at the time. He was writing initially with a group called Icon out of Phoenix. I and he also Icon. wrote for Judas Priest, uh, Some Heads Are Gonna Roll, oh. was a song that he wrote. Oh, really? That's their biggest hit, I believe. That's a good song. Yeah, it's Crack, song. Crack 3, it's yeah. 9-1, yeah. Yeah, you can't really fault that album at all, yeah. The other thing is this song does not just rip off Def Leppard. It also rips off uh, Motley Crue's version of Helter Skelter because that oh. descending part -na 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 -na, is like note for note lifted and used in the song. Yeah, it's, um, again, it's big and dumb and it's a great Def Leppard song. It was 1989, you know. You know. They should do an album of covers. What could you do at this point if you're Kiss? I mean, like, where they, they're, they must have so much information coming to them about what is a hit, what made it, what doesn't work. I mean, it must, I mean, I'm not, you know, I mean, it, you know, it must be held to be in Kiss. I really doubt it, but still I, I can imagine the type of thought processes that are going on, um, you know, where they're like, 
well, what are we going to sound like? What do we need? What are people responding to? Are we worried about what people are responding to? Are we trying to be the true artists that we are and doing what we, you know, in creating artwork, you know, that hopefully people will respond to? I don't know. I was going to say, it's interesting uh, that it's sort of the counterpoint to, you know, the, the point that uh, Dave Lucarelli mentioned about there being sort of a, a concept of the record. You know, this is definitely not part of that concept. No, um, but it's you know for sure something that you know stands apart from that and gives the record that amount of depth that it might need. Um, but I think there are definitely other songs in this record that we haven't got to that are stronger, possibly songs. I heard that the, I read somewhere that the length of this album is so long because of the fact that they suddenly now have CDs that can take up to seventy minutes of music. Yes, that was a factor. The record companies were trying to switch everything over to CDs and cassette tapes, and so you know they yeah. Whereas previously, if you had a, a record, there were certain parameters where you were compromising the low end and the bass if you extended the playing time of either side. You know, it's, that's a really good point, because at that time, at this point in time, I think I was still, when they were, when they initially announced this for, for, for orders, I was still a manager at Odyssey Records, used to be the biggest record store in Las Vegas at the time, up on Las Vegas Boulevard, and I remember talking to the label rep, oh. and that was part of the, the, kind of the backstory in that conversation. He, obviously, he knew I was a fan. But he did talk about, hey, the fans are going to really be happy with this because this is an album we're really exploiting the the full capacity of a CD. Mm. So we really think the fans are going to be happy because you're really getting your money's worth. You're going to get you know, almost a full CD's worth of material on there. And you know we're happy. The band's happy. We think fans are going to be happy with it. So that was kind of a selling point in the background. I did hear that at the time at, at least at somewhere that was a point of consideration. I don't know if it was an afterthought. They just went back and use that as, as part of the narrative to say, hey, this is why we have so many songs, or if it was actually done intentionally the way it was pitched to me by the label at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That CD creating super long albums was, to me, a kiss of death. I remember buying albums and just being like, what, this half of this could be gone. You know what I mean? And, and especially, I, I, I mean, I don't know if you remember the band uh, Digital Underground or whatever, but you know, I, Someone hand, I got that CD and it's it's like a hundred minutes long. I mean, it's it's like forever. It's this endless album of garbage and like two really good songs. Well, maybe that's where the the, the term came from, the, the coin phrase of it, maybe we need to worry about quality instead of quantity. Right. Yeah. Well, exactly. Can we get into this for a minute? Because on the subject of vinyl, I recently just recorded an album and I was told that each side needed to be no more than twenty-two minutes per side because it's you know the bass is gonna be compromised and da 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 da. Right, and you know, but at the same time too, I mean, look at these records. You got Def Leppard Hysteria, 12 songs, 63 minutes. This record does not have any lack of bottom end. Same thing for Hot in the Shade, uh, 15 new tracks over one hour of music. Also think about, uh, read the liner notes of, of Iron Maiden's Live After Death. They were worried about, you know, fitting all that, you know, music on, on the, you know, four sides of vinyl. And that album has a huge amount of bottom end. Where did that shift occur with, with vinyl, where now all of a sudden thing that you have to have, I mean, think about it. If you order, you know, the Black Crow Southern Harmony Musical Companion on vinyl now, you're looking at two discs, whereas the original had, was one disc, two sides. I, I don't understand where that, that crossover occurred. Well, now they're doing, uh, I forget what the, the um, what it's called. I'm not like a vinyl expert, but there's a, there's like a, a higher format for vinyl that that's um, heavier gram weight. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because my my son Jack is all into getting 
vinyl now because he found a record player and that kind of stuff. And so I'm pulling out all my old stuff, the stuff I didn't sell or whatever. And there's there's albums that are like wafer thin. Yeah, particularly, yeah, albums from the early 90s, uh, for sure. You know, I have a Keith Richards record, they're really yeah. thin. Archangel's album is terribly thin, you know, but at the same time, you know, when you put on some of these, you know, higher grade vinyl LPs on an older turntable, it almost kind of drags in a way. You get a lot of, you know, wow and flutter. And it's a weird thing to me. I just, I just, just thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, well, he has a high gram version of Led Zeppelin Four. Like we bought it for him for Christmas or whatever. And then he has a high gram version of the new Tyler, the Creator album. And they sound fan-freaking-tastic mm. on vinyl. Whereas my, you know what I mean? I don't remember them even sounding that good when I had a, a vinyl, you know what I mean? Vinyl copies of records. So I think there's definitely a lot more work going into um, these albums now. I was going to say, there is something, not to go off on too much of a tangent about vinyl, but <laughs> just as an audio engineer, there is something about uh, depth of field that is possible to convey in vinyl that you lose in CDs and cassette tapes. Right. And that, I mean, I know, I know, we got to shut up about this. It's the whole dithering thing. It's the limiter that stops it when it's on a digital format that turns off the uh, room tone. And that's what, at least that's what I've always said. Yeah, that could, be, that could be a factor. I don't know the exact science of it, but, you know, the drums sound like they're literally behind the guitars and the guitars are out in front and the voice is out in front of that. You, you definitely have a lot more depth. Yeah, and the further you get into the grooves, like, you know, the last song on side one on, on a vinyl will probably have less, you know, bass or low end or, yeah, I mean, it's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But the point, I guess point being, you know, when you get a CD... And you get more music, you're getting more bang for your buck. I mean, I, maybe that's more of a supporting, you know, notion for people to buy CDs at the time, which this is 1988, 89. CDs were big, vinyl was on its way out. And apparently this is the last record that was uh, mass produced uh, on vinyl for Kiss anyways, right? Hmm, okay. No, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, try to, yeah, try to find a copy of Kiss Revenge on vinyl, you know, of the era. Good luck. <laughs> okay. All right, so then we have Love's A Slap in the Face, um, we, which interestingly enough is co-written by our old friend, former KISS producer, Vinnie Poncia. Um, I think very much falls in the same category as the Prisoner of Love song, musically more interesting than lyrically, and you know, kind of treading that KISS version of Motown, uh, you know, mid-tempo rocker but maybe not all that memorable i literally my notes here says uh i wrote the name of the song and then i put a dash and then i just wrote boring <laughs> i don't i didn't you know what i mean i don't even i can't even remember what it sounds like right now you know um again um gene simmons is down his s m rabbit hole um and then I guess I read some story about the album, you know, Love is a, I mean, someone and he and someone were talking about relationships or whatever and how, so he was going to talk about how rough love is and that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, so it was sort of like he's trying to show his sensitive side, but then it doesn't work at all as being, you know, I don't know, man. It just, uh, I didn't know where, it didn't go anywhere for me. I just got nothing for it. For me, funny that, uh, not funny, but interesting, you, you, you mentioned that uh, Vinny was involved with this. I mean, it definitely, to me, sounds like a song that could have easily fit on uh, Unmasked, in a way, musically uh, and, 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 and lyric mm -hmm. melody-wise. Um, but I think my issue with the lyrics, too, is like, you know, 
okay, Gene, is it your love is a slap in the face or your love is like a ball and chain? What is it? Can it kind of because it kind of turns around at the end of the song? It changes at the end, like the chorus changes from being loves a slap in the face to loves a ball and chain, which is probably the most interesting thing about the song lyrically that they just like at the end, you know, completely abandoned the title of the song. Right, yeah, I know. What the heck was that about? I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying. It's not working. I'm calling you yeah. with another line. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, it's funny you, you say that, Michael, because I, I, I always kind of felt that when I, when I first heard that song. To me, I don't, I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I always thought it sat in the pocket with something from mm -hmm. Dynasty or yeah. Unmasked. Not a great song. It's a very forgetful song, but there's something about that song in there that reminds me of Gene's writing at that time. Yeah, and I, I, perhaps you know maybe Vinny was a, a key component to that. Um, but at the same time, too, when you look at you know the uh, we talked about you know the you know the non-lyric um, in Hide Your Heart, you've got the na 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 na. I find that in this song less annoying than you know, what was going on in Hide Your Heart. You know, oh, I still find approach. it annoying. I still find okay. it <laughs> Okay, okay. I'm not seeing, yeah. again, you know, Dave, I know you're a lyric guy and I admire you for that. And, you know, you for sure could have come up with something that would have been better than na-na-na-na. <laughs> well, sometimes that's the best part of songs, though. Yeah, sometimes it is. Yeah. I mean, that is that nonsense sing-along purple, part. hush, it totally works. Yeah. Oh, for some reason yeah. in Kiss songs, I don't know. It's something about it, like, just rubbed me the wrong way. Really, because it's like in in uh, I love it loud. Hey, yeah, that I doesn't mean, that's bother a me. That's like a chant. That's different. Yeah, it's I okay. dig that. No, that I got no no problem with that one. All right, but don't put the you know, two or three on the same record. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. All right, the big hit song from this album, arguably the song that drove the album and uh, actually made the tour as successful as it was was yeah. The Ballad Forever, co-written with Michael Bolton. Yeah, he was in a band with... Uh, Bruce. What's Bruce. his name? Yeah. I wrote uh, a good 80s metal ballad. Um, and apparently I read that it was the biggest, it was their biggest hit since Beth. Um, and the thing that really stood out for me is the um, acoustic guitar sort of solo bit in there. Is that a 12 string or is that just a regular six string? David, I think it, it, it sounds so it's, pretty. It's a regular six string, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's what I thought, but it, it sounded, it sounded so pretty. Um, but yeah, that actually makes it stand out. And again, the big chorus, you know, I find myself walking around the house humming it, you know what I mean? And that kind of stuff. So it's definitely like, it's a well-written solid ballad. Um, Great guitar playing, but yeah, Bruce yeah. I think the the acoustic guitar solo is one of the most memorable aspects about it. And apparently, um, yeah. Bruce recorded or was going to record an electric solo for it, and Paul suggested no, make it the kind of semi-acoustic sound or semi-classical sounding acoustic solo, and it definitely elevates the song. Um, it's a song that sounds like it was designed to be played at every wedding and every high school prom ever. Yeah. Right, it's a song to slow dance to. It's um, supposedly Michael Bolton actually didn't have that much to do with the writing of the song. Mm -hmm. He added a few little things, and then after it was a hit song, he started playing it in concert and introducing it as, "Oh, this is the song that I wrote for this," <laughs> and it kind of picked up 
Paul Stanley because he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, because I read that, I guess, you know, there was some involvement with Michael and then he kind of disappeared. And then Paul was like, well, you know, I want to involve you know, people in the process. And I guess, you know, there was sort of a breakdown in that uh, working group. And uh, yeah. No, I was just going to say that to, to the point that was made earlier about the wedding aspect of I had friends that were not KISS fans at all. Uh, I had uh, two pairs of friends that were actually uh, on the completely on the other side of the spectrum <laughs> of KISS. <laughs> but, but both of them like it's used awesome. forever as, as their wedding uh, song. So I have to wonder how much that song pushed the sales of that record yeah. to people like that that had no idea who KISS was or didn't like KISS at all, but they bought the record because of the strength of that song or they wanted to use it at their damn wedding. And by the way, they're all divorced now. <laughs> Which is actually a theme. Every big hit, quasi-hit Kiss song that they've ever had has really been a song that's been embraced by people that hate Kiss. And Kiss fans have kind of gone like, eh, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Beth, I was made for loving you forever. Yeah, you know, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, you know, to, to David's point, um, you know, until this record, from what I read, you know, was released, you know, forever that is, um, they were looking to book a tour from what I read, and apparently they weren't getting a whole lot of response and a lot of interest from, you know, different markets. And I guess once, you know, this song broke through, then, you know, they, because I remember thinking there was a long time between when the record was released and when they announced the tour. Yeah. And I was yeah. wondering what in the heck was going on. And I guess apparently that might have been the issue, you know, that, they, you know, the record wasn't selling and, you know, they weren't getting that much support and, you know, what were they going to do? And I guess... Finally, once this record broke, then they had the you know the support you know that they needed. Can I also bring up a point too about um, a, a song that Paul co-wrote uh, for a band uh, by the name of War Babies? There's a song that, uh, on their record, I think it's called uh, "Cry Yourself to Sleep at Night" or mm. "Cry Yourself to Sleep," and the chord changes are really similar to the chord changes in the uh, the chorus of this song. Um, and you know, to me, you know, the War Babies record is you know hit or miss, but I think it's definitely you know one of the strongest tracks on, on that record. And it's, it's worth a, you know a listen if you guys want to check it out. Definitely, I will it. check that out. Yeah, yeah, and I think the verses too are great too. But you know, it's, it's a tangent, but it, it's something worth investigating. It's a, it, to me, it's a great song. Uh, you know, and and if the fact that you know Paul co-wrote it, you know, is a testament to his uh, abilities as a songwriter for sure. Okay, moving on to one of my favorite songs on the album, a song that I think is kind of a hidden gem of the song, "Silver Spoon." Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. There's nothing, you know, I, I, that's funny that you say that because it's um, a song that grew on me. I remember hearing it, um, you know, on my first re-listen to it this week and going, what is this? You know what I mean? This sounds a little tired, but then listening to it more and more, I was like, this is pretty catchy. I like this chorus. I like this message. You know what I mean? This stays on target for lyrically, you know what I mean? And, and doesn't like devolve into cliches or whatever. Um, I do think it sounds a little bit like uh, Theater of Pain era Motley Crue again. Hmm. Um, hmm. Other than that, I still, I liked it. Some interesting use of the slide guitar. I know you guys are kind of critical of the slide at the beginning of Rise to It. Granted, it's a little cliche, but here I think it really enhances the, the feel of the song. Mm. No, it, it doesn't bother me in this song at all. Yeah. It does not. No, yeah, I, I like it in this song for sure. I think if I have any, you would call it, you know, cri criticism of the, the intro to, to Rise to it, it's just that, you know, like David had mentioned, it, it had already been done, you know, two years before on, on a record and it, 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 with a very similar riff. Whereas in this case, 
Bruce is, you know, slide playing is, is really tasty. It's great, you know, and, and, you know, point to anybody, which, you know, a lot of us are guitar, we're all, we're all musicians and guitar players. If you want to get into a band, make sure, you know, when somebody says to you, do you know how to play slides? Say yes and learn it because it opens a lot of doors. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a flavor that can be added and, and is sometimes much needed. Uh, but my, I have a question about this song. To me, the intro sounds like something that might have been in Queensryche's uh, Operation Mindcrime, in a way. Yeah. Hmm. Right? Hmm. It's interesting, yeah. I, and to, timeline, I'm not sure which record came out, you know, before or after. It's really not important, but there are no, there's no point where they use that intro or the reintro and they sing over that, right? It's just a, a part that, that is reintroduced and, and used, and there's, there's never a, a, a lyric moment or vocal moment for it, right? I think you're correct, yes. Okay. Because it... it, it when you hear the intro, you think the song's going to go in a different way, and then when it kicks in, it kicks in like a, you know, like a, you know, we, we mentioned Bon Jovi, I can come up with a better example, but to me, the verse is so strong that, you know, the, that intro doesn't really lead you into that verse in, a, in an appropriate way, you know what I mean? It just seems like a misfit. Huh, that's interesting. That doesn't bother me, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I think it's a really interesting song lyrically. I think we're getting into the the sort of Zen Cohen, Paul Stanley existentialist philosopher a little bit where he says, nowhere to hide in a crowded room. Because, yeah. and I love that line because actually if you think about it, if it's a crowded room, there should be everywhere to hide. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's sort of one of those lines like the sound of one hand clapping. Um, the, the whole idea that, uh, you know, you're just another face in the great big bad city, but the, the the value of coming from the lower class is that nobody is dismissed as being an insignificant person just because they're not wealthy or powerful. That line. Right. Everybody, everybody somebody is somebody. Something. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, but what's the lyric that he uses? Because that was the song where I was, that was the moment I was like, oh, wait, this song isn't boring. You know what I mean? And I actually, you know, played it back again. What's the line? Well, I mean, there's a couple of references to it. You know, when he says, because where I come from, everybody's somebody, you know. Right, right. That's it. I remember hearing that line and saying, hey, that makes, that stands out. But yeah. even, even the, you know, in a city where the buildings rise, I was just another face. But mama told me when somebody dies, no one else can take your place. You know, it's kind of yeah. some profound yeah. uh, stuff there. Well, it definitely stands out better than a lot of the other cliches on the album. So I, I like it. I mean, I definitely dig. Again, like I said, at first I was dismissive of the song. And then the more I listened to it, the more I was like, this is pretty cool. I wish it rocked a little harder. Well, the production, I mean, not, you know, could be a little better. Something in it that stood out a little bit more. You know what I mean? Just something, the lyrics are good, but I just wish there was, I don't know, maybe a non, 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 hey, 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 hey. <laughs> you think that would make it rock harder, do you? Uh, uh, right, okay. yes. Exactly. Uh, I, I like the, the, the black chicks that come in or I, I should I assume they're black chicks that come in the the, the, the you know, and sing the soulful part at the end funny story about them they came in to do the record and they were initially hesitant right because you know, they knew about kiss like Gene Simmons fire breathing blood spitting you know guy and so they they, they said well we'll we'll come and do it but we're not going to sing any devil music you know which uh, uh. which I thought was pretty funny and interesting and kind of gets back to the a point I made on the show before, which is that originally all these guys that played early rock and roll were all trained in 
singing in the church, your little Richards, your, mm -hmm. you know, all, all these guys and any music that wasn't, you know, just overtly praising God was by definition devil music. Yep. Yeah. I just funny you say that on a side note, I just, I had that discussion with my best friend the other day. He had actually asked me, he goes, what do you think people think Kiss are a satanic band? And I, I have very strong opinions of that. And, uh, yeah, and I did bring it back to that. I said, you know, you got to have to realize that, you know, there was a period of time that everything that came out that was different, you know, starting with Little Richard, Elvis Presley, Elvis, yeah. all of, at some point or another, you had, um, and I'll be kind the way I put this, but you have somebody who was um, very committed to their religion that shuts out things like this. They don't understand it. They misinterpret it. They look for meaning where there is none. And then they go out for the, they basically go out to crucify them mm -hmm. uh, unfairly in, in a lot of ways, you know, mm -hmm. but my buddy was kind of taken aback by that. And that's a really good point. I'm going to bring, bring back to him later, you know, this afternoon when I talk to him again, you know, it's funny. I just had another conversation to kind of tie this together. Cause that's a very, very fair perspective. Yeah. Side note, by the way. Yeah. I also think too that one of the things that threatens modern organized religion about certain bands and certain types of rock music is the fact that it is in itself kind of a religion. And it's a religion mm -hmm. that exists completely independently of their institutions and power structures and doesn't need them to be a part of it to be successful. True story. Yeah. That's a really good point though that you made earlier. I just. Thought I'd share that with you because it was timely. It is timely, and it, it, you know. But at the same time, too, you know, when it, when it comes to you know, just, you know, things that are memorable when it comes to music. I mean, if you know, if, if you go to school and you're trying to learn algebra, and it, it's difficult. <laughs> but why is it that becomes difficult? But I can hear a song, and I can remember that song from beginning to end in terms of the sounds, the lyrics, the melodies. But with algebra, I just can't get that. You know, if you could teach you know, algebra to music, somehow there, there's a, a breakthrough that we're, we're all missing in a way. Story. Well, I'm kind of being silly with, but also too, um, we're talking about they teach the algebra too early. That's the problem. Okay, it's abstract thinking, and, and most eighth graders aren't aren't able to do abstract thinking until well into uh, sophomore junior year of high there school. So really, but they don't know how else to do it. This is, I mean, I'm a teacher, so I talk to a lot of other teachers about okay. it. And one of the big things we talk about is like I'm an art teacher, so. Hmm. If the kids don't really, you know, there's going to be no knowledge loss from my art kids because I basically design my own curriculum. You know, as long as I cover the elements of art and the principles of design, they get what they're supposed to do. And I have three years to do it. But math, they're, you know, if you have that, that uh, virtual learning thing, they're not going to be able to get it. So music has sort of a, um, it's non-abstract. It's there. It's time. You know what I mean? So you're able to just immediately inculcate it. Whereas um, with math and science, it's always built, and particularly algebra, because it's abstract. Nobody knows what X is. You know what I mean? And there's no, you know, it's not until you're actually launching a rocket into space that you're like, oh, this is what X well, is. Well, we know X is in yeah. sex, too. So, yeah. <laughs> right. We know that X is in sex. So, I mean, that's right. But algebra, al but art, music is art. Art music is also personal and emotional. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, it's ethos, bathos, and pathos, and I don't remember the differences between the three, but that's how, how you respond to different things. 
can I make one final point on Silver Spoon? Um, yeah. This is kind of like you know the the move on you know from Paul's '78 solo album, but if, you know, on this on this record in a way, you know, he's, he's sort of like you know learning life lessons from you know his mother and you know living life, and he had the, the female you know background vocals at the end, and um, you know I think if it's if it's this is a strong song to me on, on this record, absolutely for sure. You, you know what I was going to say to that I think it's it is a, in, in some ways it's a relative to move on. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so moving on to Cadillac Dreams. This is a song that I think definitely shows a little bit of that Broadway style music influence that I was talking about. And, you know, I think the song's a great song, but it's also a little problematic because of Gene's relationship to money is not the same relationship to money that the average person has, right? I mean, his father was absent from his life at a very early age and something from like the age of four, six years old, he figured out a way to start earning money. And the first time he did that, his mother, you know, like broke down in tears uh, because he had figured out how to sell fruit on the side of the road that he could pick while living on the kibbutz in Israel. So what money symbolizes to Gene is a whole other thing than you know what it might symbolize to the capitalist society average middle class kid but that said if this was part of a broadway show this would be where our young hero thinks he knows what he wants out of life and it's money and he finds out by the end that what he really needs is love don't we all yeah well said, yeah. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that, man. That's beautiful analysis there. I like the brass part. Gets all changed up with the, the brass, horns. you know. With yeah. the, actually, again, that's something that makes it stand out. That's one of those things that the more I go through these Kiss albums, there's, there's you know, or and really analyze songwriting, one of the things I've noticed is these songs, you always have to have something that makes it stand out a little bit. You know what I mean? One little trick to it that makes it stand out and that... The brass part in it is uh, what does it for me. Which also, also reminds me of uh, the Aerosmith uh, track from Pump. I think it was uh, Other Side, right? Where they had uh, horns yeah. mm. in it as well, right? But I don't know, what you, tell me something, guys. When I heard this, because I was listening to this on vinyl, so I had to flip the record over and, you know, it started off, you know, Side B with the Gene Simmons song. And then I started to question, like, oh, why does it seem weird that they're starting off Side B with the Gene Simmons song? But then I realized that, um, you know, the, the first Kiss release, Kiss, Second side opens with Deuce. Uh, Hog and Hell opens with All the Way. So I don't know why. For some reason, this, it just seemed odd to me that, that you know the side B started with a Gene Simmons song. Did you know? Did that occur to, to any of you guys or no? Well, no. But now that you mention it, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. No. Whoa. No. Yeah. I don't know why on this record it sort of stood out, but like on you know the, you know, the initial Kiss release or all, you know, Hog and Hell or um, you know uh, Rock and Roll Over, you know it, side B starts with Love and Leave Him. I don't know, it just it seemed a little odd to me, but you know, I'll, I'll sort that out. <laughs> right. There's a cool vulnerability in some of these lyrics too. I think there's kind of a raw emotional honesty that we don't usually get from Gene, 
where, you know, when he says, I learned the hard way, there's a heartbreak every day. Stone cold reality came crashing down on me. Well, life was hard on me, but I still don't give a damn. When I was 17, I was an angry young man, but I still won't let just anybody tell me who I am. You know, I think that's a, that's a big part of him. You know, it's like kind of a callback to trial by fire. Um, when he says, you know, tell, they say, tell me everything. They say, let me hear you sing. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's, it's funny, to, it's funny too with Kiss lyrics. I mean, sometimes the lyrics go over the heads of the audience in, in a live situation. It's been said uh, the same of the Eagles. I mean, they've written songs like Wasting or Wasted Time or, you know, um, you know, whereas, you know, when you're playing in front of like a, a party hardy audience and you're trying to, you know, you want to sort of, you know, connect with the audience and sell these lyrics, you know, that might not resonate with somebody that's there just to, you know, have a good time and, and enjoy the show for what it is, which is kind of a shame because Kiss have written so many great lyrics over the years that a lot of, a lot of these things get overlooked, unfortunately. I think that's yeah. true about any great rock band. I mean, you could yeah. certainly Motley Crue, yeah. Guns N' Roses, you know, there's, there's lyrics that they have that people, you know, just go right over their heads, but they're brilliant. Yeah. Well, nobody pays attention to lyrics. I think because everybody in this in here is some sort of songwriter. We are probably the few people that actually pay attention to lyrics, and in many cases, it's lyrics that make the song stand out. You know what I mean? I mean, um, you know, I mean, what the? Uh, this is ridiculous. I don't know why this just just jumped into my head. But WAP, the song that is now you know the big trending hit. You guys know yes. this, right? You know yes. what it stands for. Okay, it's this big trending hit now, and it's like, well, it's the thing that makes that song is the WAP, you know what I mean? Because you're sort of like, that's an, you know, obviously it's completely filthy, but it's it's completely, it's a totally interesting lyric. It's something that makes it stand out. So, you know, um, and I, I, that's actually an interesting thing that you talk about because then there's a move in, you know, with hip hop, it tends to be more um, lyric related Here, here's my thought about hip-hop right there are yeah, people that okay. listen to rock mu or muse pop music just for the beat they like to dance to it and then there mm. are people that listen to it just for the lyrics okay so you take those people that listen to the the lyrical message of the song and the people that like the beat and you distill it down to sometimes little more than just that and there's your audience mm. for hip-hop yeah. yeah okay i'll buy that that's interesting yeah i don't know i don't know it's just it's different it's it's always fascinating the idea of like what lyrics what people pay attention to in lyrics i mean i grew up you know my dad was my dad was an english teacher and i mean his favorite guy to listen to was bob dylan so i grew up in a household that you know there was it was bob dylan that we were listening to and then it was my mom was you know uh, the Beatles and the Monkees and the, you know what I mean? So it was always songs that were sort of, but 60s lyrically minded songs, you know what I mean? So to me, it's always been important, but I don't think it, really anybody else takes it that seriously. But then you have these songs that, like if that's the case, if you're just trying to write a song that has a good beat and you can dance to it, why write these 12 songs? You know what I mean? Why not? You know, because there's nothing really that stands out about a lot of these songs. Well, yeah, I think um, sometimes, you know, you write a song and you're sort of emotionally attached to it and you want to, you want to be able to say, okay, I wrote a song like that. 
you know, and whether or not the rest of the world picks up on that isn't really important, you know, to you, you know, you mm -hmm. just want to say, I, I've done that and I, I can knock that off the list. Right. Yeah. The art yeah. for art's sake. But to, to, to John Carson's point about, you know, this is, you know, the, my favorite, you know, Kiss cover record. Did anybody pick up on the fact that during the Cadillac Dreams part is, it sounds very similar to Ballroom Blitz? Ah, that's good call. Right now, now that you say that, of course, I hear it instantly. Right, which was not written, which was not written by Crocus. It was not written by Crocus. Yeah. A little bank yeah. called the Sweet. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Who Kiss would have been very much aware of. Yes. Absolutely. 1975. Yes. You bet they were. Yeah. Good call. Good call on that. Um, also, yeah, Poncia involved in co-writing yeah. this, and the next song, uh, "King of Hearts." Is this, is this part of his narrative? Is this one of those songs he thinks fits in with the concept? I actually do think this fits in with the concept, yeah, because there's all kinds of references about we could barely survive in the world outside, caught between two city streets like a bad dream. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I picture this being Paul with his first girlfriend when he's still trying to make it in a band and, and you know, all of the... Uh, the rapture of, of young love. I actually think he captures something in this song too that is is kind of interesting where, you know, how can I say this? Um, <laughs> if you've ever been with a particularly young, perhaps less experienced girl romantically, <laughs> there there is this combination of lust and admiration in the look that she gives you where you're sort of a father figure to her that is kind of intoxicating <laughs> and I, wasn't this I, a police <laughs> song you know don't stand so close to me or is this christine 16 <laughs> yeah no i'm just i'm just saying that you know the whole thing about when she tells me i want it i go crazy i need it that whole thing it, it captures a certain spirit <laughs> Well, like Eagle said about Hotel California, this is a song about, you know, uh, innocence, you know, going into experience, right? So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But can I bring up a point to you about the song too? Because um, it's relatively unconfirmed. Apparently there were two tracks on this record where uh, Kevin Valentine from, um, you know, Donny Iris and the Cruisers uh, played drums on this record. And apparently this is one of them. Yes. Right? He, Kevin has said that he played on at least a couple tracks on this. And I think, yeah, this is one and... Uh, Love me to hate you is the other. Yeah, one. but the reason I bring it up is um, if you listen to the, the chorus for this song with like the interweaving you know vocals in the chorus of King of Hearts of the Fantasy, um, if you listen to songs on Donny Iris records like uh, particularly King Cool um, yeah. and Aaliyah, there's like that layering of vocals. Yeah. But to me, when I heard the song, it was just like making food earlier this week, and I had the record on. I'm like, wait a minute, this <laughs> sounds like a Donny Iris song. But then I looked at him like, wait a minute, who played drums on this? It's Kevin Valentine. I'm like, what, what, how did that, you know, what a strange coincidence. Yeah, you wonder if Kevin had some influence there to, to I wonder. the chorus. I wonder, because, yeah, one of the best songs that, you know, in Donnie's catalog is King Cool. That's a badass song. It's a similar theme, too. It's like a guy that's, you know, trying to be up and coming and being a, a, a you know, a hero. Uh -huh. and it, it's a similar theme, but it's a similar approach to the vocals. It just hit me this week, and, you know, like a cannonball. Yeah. The other thing I love about this song is the way it goes from the end of Bruce's solo back down to the intro of the song. Like to me, it's like you don't realize how rocking the song is until they take it back down a notch and you're like, holy shit, this is yeah. a really good song. Yeah. Yeah. It also, you know, we mentioned um, with, you know, the Gene Simmons song, um, you know, where 
this song could have been on Unmasked in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And again, involving Vinny as, as a co-writer, so no wonder. But interesting too that Vinny was brought in as a, as a, a co-writer, but not as a producer. But still, that feel comes through in terms of his production. You know, I think I like him better as a songwriter than a producer. <laughs> you know, I agree. Yep. I agree. I like that. That was funny that you mentioned that because the lit, the vocal part in the chorus is my favorite part. Yeah, I, I think the production could be a little stronger for that part. It gets a little buried, but uh, but I like it for sure. Um, moving on, another Tommy Thayer co-write uh, with a little bit of a nod to early glam David Bowie, "The Street Giveth and the Street Taketh Away." I think Tommy actually plays some acoustic guitar on this as well. I'm gonna say right out that you guys probably all like this song. I do. I don't because of the Hey Man, because of the where he totally rips from Suffragette City. I feel like if I had brought this song to a uh, writing session with whatever band I was in, you guys would go, "Why won't we just cover Suffragette City?" So explain to me why I should. I, I think it's less of a rip than more of a conscious tip of the hat. You know, like the, the story is Gene Simmons ran into David Bowie sometime in the 80s in a recording studio. And he said, you know, I love all of your early stuff. Why don't you make more music like that? Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, I think, I think it's interesting that Gene sort of sideswipes the issue because I think he's been asked about it where, you know, he's saying, is this like a tip of the hat to David Bowie? And he said, no, as a matter of fact, he, the, the song title itself was influenced by um, a record that was produced by Jimi Hendrix uh, and the band name was Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys. And they, I think the, the name of the album was, you know, The Street Giveth and The Street Taketh Away. So he might've, you know, even though he might've brought in, you know, the Bowie thing with, you know, the lyric part, you know, but the, the song title was a complete lift, if you will, from, you know, another band um, around the same time. So what do you think he's trying to say with that song title? I have my own theory, but I'm, I'm just curious to see you guys' thoughts too. Uh, I just think he's trying to say, you know, be aware, you know, observe conditions and, you know, you know, don't get ripped off, you know, just, you know, have your guard up and, and be ready for anything. That's my take on it. Okay. I also, I also think it's on some level, it's about... Um, you know, as much as record companies can push bands and, and that kind of thing, that ultimately the, it's, your success is defined by the people. You could, you know, have millions of dollars behind you promoting an album, and if the people decide they don't like it, that's it. You have been judged by the street as being unworthy and they will not support you. So to a certain extent, you know, that's basically what it always comes down to is the will of the people deeming you a success or not. I agree with that, but also what, what hit me too, uh, Dave Lucrelli is, um, I think it's the second verse when he's talking about, you know, don't you understand, you know, you're, you're just a rock and roll of the dice, you know, there ain't no life after death, you know, so save your breath, you're going to be a rock and roll suicide. This is before you know, the grunge movement and other artists, you know, that were, you know, huge grunge artists, you know, that, that took their own lives and, you know, and missed out on a lot of things because of that. So this is sort of like the, the forebearer of what was about to occur, you know, two years later in the music industry. Rock and roll suicide's a line by David Bowie, though. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like he's just mining David Bowie for this But song. I think the that's meaning all. the meaning behind it, though, is is, 
yeah, yeah, it's a good point, Mike. I, I again, I this doesn't strike me as being a ripoff as of Bowie as as much as as a nod towards him. And you know, I definitely I see your point. But you know, Gene wrote that book, uh, twenty eight, right, about all of the rock and rollers that that had died at age 28 you know from Jimi hendrix and janice joplin, joplin so you know even Morrison, though that yeah. kind of you know indulgence and in hard drugs and that lifestyle came back in vogue with with grunge it had taken out jim morrison Jimi hendrix janice joplin at an early age and uh you know it's an interesting lyric i also love the uh you know thing where he says you know Let's see. Hey, man, do, don't, do you need a hand? Well, I ain't no blessing in disguise because uh, I don't walk on water, you know. And I, I think that that's something that, that was a truthful line for him where he gets fans that come up to him and say like, hey, man, could you help my band uh. out? Like, you know, could we, <laughs> you know, you're like a god to me, you know, like much like Ozzy talks about, you know, fans coming up to him and saying, what's the meaning of life? When's the end of the world? And he's like, I, how the fuck should I know? I'm an entertainer, you know? I, I think yeah. that's also Gene responding to that kind of blind hero worship and adulation. Yeah, but I also think that, you know, to John Carson's point, you know, the, the easiest way to you know, sort of wriggle out of this, you know, Bowie thing is to not, you know, start off the verse with Hey Man, you know, like in that way, you know, but at the same time... And the rock and roll suicide. Yeah. Yeah, there's lines in all over it that are taken from, it sounds like, you know, don't lean on me, man, because you can't afford a ticket back to Suffragette City. I mean, it's, there's, it's almost like a poor man's Suffragette City, that's all. And I, I mean, I appreciate that you guys are analyzing it, but every time I listened to it, I was like, these are dumbed down versions of the lyrics from Suffragette City. You know what I mean? But maybe I should go back and listen to it again. And what do you think Bowie's trying to say in Suffragette City? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, it's Suffragette. It's like a place of... Suff suffrage means belonging as a citizen you know what i mean or being able to vote or whatever so i've always tried to figure that out because it's not suffragette like as in women voters i think it just means a place where everybody is welcome you know so when he's saying don't you know but there's also commonality you know with you know gene gene saying you know i, I you know because i don't walk on water and you know with suffragette cities like you know don't lean on me, man. You know, it's like, I, yeah, I don't have all the answers, you know? True. There's nothing wrong with the tip of the hat. You know, I've written tons of songs that, you know, might have sounded like, you know, some of my favorite artists. And that was sometimes intentional, you know, because I want to write a song like that. You know, I mean, Def Leppard did the same thing with Hysteria. They wanted to write songs that sounded like, you know, a Queen record. And, you know, does Def Leppard sound like Queen? No. But that might have been their intention, you know? Yeah. All right. You love me to hate you. Easy for me. They could have cut this one off the record. This, this is a, a really forgettable song for me personally. Um, it's just, it's there. It occupies space. Um, you know, it's one of the 15 songs that can fill out that, that CD, but it's just, you know, there's some interesting quirks and moments in that song, but overall it leaves me empty as a listener. Yeah. I, you know, I, 
there are records there are records like uh you know boston don't look back you know which was you know the second record in their catalog and, and that record definitely goes off a cliff when you listen to side b right you know um i think this record starts off strong in, in midway it's it's carrying through but it's it definitely goes off a cliff in the end it, it gets weaker the, the more you get into the actual record itself um and i if it was me you know not because it's about me but there's something about that chorus riff where paul's singing way high which is you know, superhuman vocal, you know, technique. But I, I would think that if it was Paul, he would revisit that and say, maybe I don't need to have that high harmony in, in the chorus that is just so... It's, by the end of the song, it's grating. It's really yeah. grating on your nerves. Very much, yeah. It's yeah. Imp ah. impressive, yeah, impressive as it is, it, it might be somewhat unnecessary, you know. It had been, been a good single, a crossover single with Joan Jett's uh, I Hate Myself for Loving You. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, remember when bands used to do split seven inches? That's what yes. they should have done. Uh, yeah, that'd have been cool. I heard changes by yes in there. Uh, like say, you guys knew yeah. the verse. Yeah, yes. the verse of changes for sure sounds like the chorus of this song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's funny is um I'm on a big uh because doing this whole kiss thing, my other favorite band in the world is Yes. And so I'm sort of Me too. Yeah. I'm seeing parallels. The way you guys know kiss knowledge is the way I know yes knowledge. And the way that we were talking about Vinnie Vincent sort of reinvigorating Kiss and then later these other members and bringing Trevor in, Raven. That's yeah. sort of what Trevor Raven did to Yes as he came in and brought them back. And so it's interesting that I heard sort of, and, and then again, that Trevor Raven sound is such an 80s sound. Mm. And then they also incorporated, incorporated it in there to sort of fit with the 80s. You know, and I, again, I don't know if that was something like, um, Bruce was sitting around going, yeah, that's a pretty cool lick. I'll see if I can write something similar to but it. You know what, John, to your point, um, the solo in this song uh, starts off like an octave effect, which is similar to what Trevor right. did on the solo to uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart. I think that was an MXR yeah. his right. transposer, which does like, I think in, in that case, he set it to like a fifth. It wasn't an octave, but it's a similar sound. It's a similar approach mm -hmm. to processing the sound. Yeah. So keen observation. Thank you, John. That's great. And I think it was you, Mike, who showed me that tour book lately where where Bruce Kulick cites Yes as one of his favorite bands yeah. and influences. So, yeah, that was from the uh, the Crazy Nights tour book, yeah. Yeah, and I think Paul's mentioned Yes, too, as, as being a fan. So, you know, I think, yeah, you're onto something there. Well, think about this, though, too. Let's go back. Let's go way deep with this, then. Um, the solo in um, Lover All I Can from Dress to Kill, right? That is totally that... That looping, it's totally like a Steve Howe guitar. Anyway, it, you know, they, clearly, <laughs> you can yeah. have yes influences in Kiss for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, I don't, um, I heard that and I don't, um, but again, the song is a little bit tiresome, but I liked it just because musically and I heard the yes influence in it. So I thought that was kind yeah, of tiresome. Good way, good way to describe <laughs> it, John. I like the reference to a cat on a hot tin roof, keeping with my Broadway uh, theme for this album. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That's what the next project should be: is write a musical around Kiss songs. Yeah. Write a they have musical those... about this album. They've yeah. actually been trying to do a Kiss Broadway musical for a long time. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Well, speaking of tour books, um, why is it that the tour books between Crazy Nights 
and this tour, I mean, it's, it's so big, I can't even get it in the frame of the camera. Why does the tour book have to be the size of like, you know, the Ten Commandments? You know, it's like, <laughs> I got to carry this thing around and hope it arrives home safely without a wrinkle or, you know, a drink spilled on it. My goodness. You know? Yeah, it was kind of like Mission Impossible, getting those things back from a concert in, in good shape. But I'll have to send you some pictures. If you don't have the tour book, between this and uh, the Crazy Nights tour book, there's like a ton of narrative in these tour books. It's almost like a mini version of history at the time. Yeah. Well, that was why you bought the tour books. They were like the, they were the internet of the day. Yeah. They were the Wikipedia of the day. You know what I mean? They would tell you. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you could get one, apparently on Revenge, uh, you know, they sold out so quickly, you know, you couldn't get one on, on later dates of the tour. But either way, I digress. Sorry. We, you mentioned tour books and I got excited. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, next song, um, another co-write with uh, Mr. Poncia. Somewhere between heaven and hell. I, th this is straight up filler for me. There was nothing here that really stands out to me at all. So I got nothing to say about it. I second your, I second your, your, your motion. I was going to say, I don't think it's a successful song. And I think that part of the reason why it's not is, I mean, you have that kind of peer, Peter Gunn, whatever, variation yeah. on that riff um but part of the reason why it's not is because he's really talking about two different things right on one hand it's the typical gene simmons trying to get laid i say yes you say no kind of cliche <laughs> lyric um but there's there's something going on that's that's deeper here um which i think is interesting um in, especially in, in the bridge when he says, don't need your loving, don't want nothing, don't need your sympathy, don't need a friend. I just want something I can believe in, right? It's almost like this is the first time he's applied the same standard that he has for himself, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that standard of self-belief in what he's looking for in a romantic partner. So like, I think if he was talking about this and said, I'm somewhere between heaven and hell, sometimes I think you'd love me, but I can never tell, it would be a great potential, potentially great and much stronger song. I agree. I agree. The only other thing I have to add to this um, you know, discussion about this song anyways is, you know, Dave, you and I attended a guitar camp um, around this time at Duquesne University, right? Yes. And I remember the, uh, there was a rep there from Roland uh, Instruments, and he was talking about, hey, I just worked with Bruce Kulick from uh, Kiss on a record, and uh, they're working, you know, on uh, come up with heavy guitar sounds. I think uh, this guy from Roland had said, uh, you know, Bruce said, hey, you know, Paul, heavy, you know, I want like a heavy guitar sound. And to me, if there's a song in this record that might have been like a processed heavy guitar sound, uh, this might be the case where that might have been utilized, you know, looking back. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I, you know? I think I know what you mean. Yeah, that's huh. Okay, now I have to re-listen to it. Which was really the only positive, you know, affirmation from that guitar camp in terms of Kiss, you know, because we got ridiculed over and over again for being Kiss fans at this guitar camp. Oh yeah, they gave us hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, yeah. Yeah, but it, it, yeah, it, it, this song is filler in a way. It, 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 you know, there's there are stronger songs you know, that Gene has done on this record and. It's the first thing you said. People would kick your ass for being a Kiss fan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a, yeah. No, no joke, yeah. man. There's some truth. said that at some point, or somebody was like, 
big kiss fan was dangerous. Like people would kick your ass. <laughs> we'd get, we, I, I'm the guy of the seventies, man. And, and, and that's a, that's a fact. Yeah. We would get into fist fights yeah. after school before being a kiss fan. You know, guys would find, especially <laughs> the older kids, the high school kids, you know, Led Zeppelin heads, you know, those guys. And, and I'm a huge Zeppelin fan, by the way, but yeah. those kids would pick on us Kiss fans. You had a Kiss belt buckle, you know, that God forbid you had the Kiss jacket in 1979. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was a sign that says kick me. Yeah. But that's true. It was dangerous to be a Kiss fan. But I also think that that's what bonded the fan and the band so much is that you know they they, they sure. had that that if you were a kiss fan you had to stand up for the band and you had to put it on the line so you know it became that much more important to you yeah right yeah yeah interesting but it maybe guys help 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 me with the song the the, the pre-chorus in the song before it gets in the chorus it goes from like an a to b to c that was used on either creatures on, on a gene song or, or lick it up and i can't i'm trying to figure out what song that is is it rock and roll hell or Hmm. So I'm going to do some research. It, it's, a, it's a really similar chord structure that is definitely for one of those two records, and I'll, I'll get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I think so. Da, 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 yeah. Da, yeah. That's rock and roll hell. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Thank you, Dave. So now we get to one of my other favorite songs on the record. Kiss finally gives Eric Carr a chance to sing a song called Little Caesar. It's also one of my favorite songs in the album. It kicks ass. It totally kicks ass. I love it. And it's what it's the um, what they call him, Little Caesar, because well, that's his nickname, isn't that Eric Carr's nickname or whatever? Yes, it was Peter Chris, uh, the Ayatollah uh, rock and roller, and then uh, <laughs> you know he, they referred to him as Little Caesar, right? Okay, he is the shortest guy in the band. I mean, he's noticeably short, um, bordering on like I mean, no disrespect to the dead, of course, but it, there's moments where I look at Eric Carr and I'm like. There's something going on there medically. Like he's a dwarfism thing. Well, what? Almost like a form of dwarfism. dwarfism. Yeah, yeah. See, he definitely, um, but he's someone, um, I feel like he's been overshadowed a lot. I think he had a lot to do with reinvigorating the band. Definitely. Um, And I sometimes think he doesn't get the credit that he's due. You know what I mean? In terms of like what he's done. And this song shows, you know, it just, it just kicks ass. It's a great song. I know that I guess Gene Simmons helped write it but I think only in terms of giving it the title Little Caesar or whatever. Right. But yeah, lyrically, it's cool. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like standing up for yourself and all that kind of stuff. It's a cool thematic. The song rocks. I mean, yeah. It's 100%, 100% agree. I think I think Eric Carr, in a lot of ways, underappreciated and underused. I think, I think yeah. you, know, you look back and you realize he was a very talented young man. Yeah. You know, he, you know what did he do? Did he play bass on I Still Love You on Creatures of the Night? Yeah. If, yeah. if I remember correctly. You know, and if you listen to his writing at that time, I know that song started its life as a demo that we, we know from the box set, Ain't That Peculiar. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to some of the stuff mm-hmm. that later on came out, the rockology, yeah. you know, that whole thing, you know, I, I think he had a lot of writing going on at the time that really showed that the guy had a lot of musical muscle. And, uh, you know, you listen to All Hell's Breaking Loose and some of the other things where he had his imprint or he tried to have his imprint on the band. He's a guy, and it, this is a great song for an example, because I, I, I agree with you, John. I love the song. I yeah, it's one. Of, it's honestly probably my favorite song on the album. Like, easy, I love it. Easily, and he, he was finally given a chance. Unfortunately, <laughs> a little late. Um, you know, but I just think there was so much going on with him he had so much potential for that band that was really 
was really never really truly mine the way it should have been. I think mm -hmm. he had so much to offer. Listening to that solo album that ended up coming out, if you want to call it a solo album, that they ended up you know, putting the finishing touches on. But, you know, the, the, that, that song, um, I think it was the tip of the iceberg for what he was capable of doing. It's a fantastic song. That's, that's my homage to, to, to him. I think you're 100% right. I love the line, they tried to tell you that the world was rough, but they never rocked it hard enough. Yeah, yeah it's great. it's yeah. a perfect freaking song. Yeah. It should it should have been the opener on the album, you know, or something. Or it should have been. It's, it's there's nothing wrong with that song. If nothing else, it would have probably made for a more interesting record if if they put the song earlier in the, in the sequence. You know, I mean, why wait until like you know the last two songs where you you know throw you know the new guys a, a bone? You know, yeah. It's one of the standout tracks on it. I mean, you could, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this album could have been a four song EP. Yeah. You know, you know, so. Yeah, but then again, you know, thank goodness we had this song. You know, we had this to remember Eric by, you know. Absolutely. Um, and then we have a song that I would totally be fine with if it was not on this record, which I think is another kind of, you know, musician y intellectual masturbation exercise called Boomerang. Another song I should have given to Talos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, it's well, so it's, right. yeah. it's bordering on, like, it seems like they're trying to then capitalize on the sort of Metallica speed metal thing, but of course, too scared to actually go that fast. Um, and and then it's not bad. I don't mind it. It's It's got like, uh, for lack of a better cliche, this is why I stopped reading magazines like Rolling Stone and Spin because there were only so many cliches to describe music. And one of them was barn burner or buzzsaw guitars. But I could honestly say <laughs> the phrase buzzsaw guitars and barn burner works for this song, uh, Boomerang. You know what I mean? It's like definitely sort of, um, you know, I wish they had sped it up or gone a little bit crazier or tried to really actually write a speed metal song. But then again, I would have been, again, would have talked down to it and said, oh, it's another ripoff, but. Whatever. All right, I, I just want to know if Dave Lucarelli has an appreciation for any of the lyrics in this song. I've got to ask the question. <laughs> any of the lyrics? Okay. Yeah. You guys talk while I look it up because I wasn't even going to look it up. But I will do it. I will do it for you, Mike, because All right. I love you. you know, I know, and I love you too, and I love that you write lyrics, and I'm a guitar guy, and you know we have our <laughs> fortes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I got to say, I'm working on this new song. Wait till you hear the guitar, the lead work on this thing. And I'm, okay, I'm telling you, well, you know, I, I channeled some inner Bob Kulik on that. All right, hey man, you're no slouch. When I met you in in high school, you were like the Steve I of the era, and I was like the biggest dorkest dorkiest guitar player in town. So I looked up <laughs> you from the minute I met you. So ah uh, well. The feeling's mutual, brother. Anyhow, um, okay. The the one thing that I can say about this this song is that the first verse makes it seem like it's gonna be more interesting than it ultimately turns out to be. Because the first yeah. verse could actually tie into the concept of the record as we were talking about. Gonna throw mm -hmm. down the dice on a roll, it's a showdown. Gonna walk on hot coals, cut the deck, you better place your bet because the game ain't over yet, right? I mean, mm -hmm. once again, that could just be about them trying to make it as a rock and roll band and make it in life. And then, you know, it devolves quickly after that into this kind of generic, you know, Gene Simmons sexual hokum. But 
Yeah. Yeah, not. I don't know. You know, from a guitar standpoint, though, because we all we all play guitar, you know, bass, whatever. You know, you get to the point where you want to emulate your heroes. You want to, you know, play like them. You want to learn to play like them. Like it, when it gets to this kind of histrionics and guitar, it becomes okay. It's impressive. You're playing really fast. You know, but where is it going? You know, and I, it, it's a shame too because at this point we mentioned about you know, Bruce's guitar playing this record, where his approach is you know tasty and it's bluesy and he's sort of you know finding that place you know, and not trying to be like the guitar hero and playing super fast. And, and this song just kind of, you know, goes off in the other direction. And yes, it's it's super impressive, but to me, it was almost like a turnoff. Like I realized I can't play guitar like that. I've got to go in a completely opposite direction. I've got to go Allman Brothers, Jimi Hendrix, you know, go back to Jimmy Page, um, you know, uh, Earl Hooker, you know, it, I've got to go in a different direction. I cannot play that fast and I don't need to play that fast. And I'm glad to know that I don't need to play that way. You know, right. Thank goodness other people can do it because I can't do it and I don't need to do it. But it's, it's, it's impressive as all hell. You know? In contrast, though, I think when you heard Eddie Van Halen do it, a thousand you know, million guitar players said, wow, that's technically impressive and I want to learn how to play that way. I don't think that this song launched a similar army of people <laughs> going like, I, I need to emulate this. Yeah, it did launch a similar army that people reached over, hit the stop button. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> stop button army. Right. Yeah. Well, what did Paul? Wait, what did Paul say about one of the other songs on the other record? He's like, I like the fact that it's the last song on the record, and the record is over. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. My favorite quote: talking about Paul bad mouthing people. You weren't around for this one, David O'Leary. But when he's talking about the Peter Chris album, he said, "Let me just say." The first time that I heard the Peter Chris solo album was the last time that I heard the Peter Chris solo album. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyhow. Okay, so real quick, um, the Hot in the Shade tour is super successful. Granted, they take out some pretty hot acts at the time. They have an incredibly impressive stage show. They drop the solos. They add lots of old songs from the 70s, um, lots of cool theatrics that we haven't seen before. And there's a railing that is right at about rib level that I remember <laughs> looking at and I was like, gee, that seems like it's kind of dangerous. They're running around and that thing is right at the level of their ribs. And Paul Stanley actually ran smack into it and broke some ribs on that tour. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Dave, just real fast to just kind of tie this back up with the album though and, and to get into the tour. You said last week that, you know, for every action, there is a reaction. Yeah. Do you think that this album and then the subsequent tour was just that, a reaction to the, the circumstances surrounding the Crazy Nights album, between the production, the, the, maybe the lack of sales in the United States, the, the tour, the anemic tour with the set list? Do you think this per was perhaps that launching? Absolutely. And I, I think the, the big unanswered question is, what exactly happened to make them a hungrier band again, where they said, okay, the key is giving people bang for their buck. You know, let's give them 15 songs and maybe the production doesn't matter that much as long as the songs are good. And, you know, let's give them a, a huge theatrical tour and play tons of songs and do something that's really impressive. Yeah, I think that... Uh, they tried the other thing. They tried the stripped down show and they tried spending lots of money on a polished production and it ultimately didn't pay off the way they wanted it to. 
And from what I've read too, there were definitely staff that were involved with Kiss at the time that said, listen, you guys got to have to go back and you know play some of these old songs again. And they reintroduced things like, you know, the, the Light of Kiss logo and it came out towards the end of the set. And I think there's even mention of maybe or, or a suggestion that maybe Ace Frehley should open the set, the show, and he could do come out in an encore. And mm. from what I've read, you know, Gene and Paul embraced it, but I guess Ace, you know, declined. Hmm. You know, but I mean, at the same time, too, I mean, we mentioned, you know, last week about Crazy Nights. That tour was, that show was over and done in a, a heartbeat, man. I went home thinking, what the hell happened? But with this show, I was, you know, it was rain in Pittsburgh, man. This, this, it was raining. I was under the, you know, this is one of those shed venues where I was luckily under the shed and I wasn't getting rained on, but like they were kicking ass from the beginning, man. They were just playing like song after song, I, or I Story Love, Deuce, you know, Strutter. It was like, damn, this is the show that I wanted to see. Because you know, I, I only first saw them in 1979, which you know, I'm sure you know, Dave, you did as well. Um, but, you know, for, for David to say, see them on you know, the, the earlier tours is absolutely amazing. But, you know, I mean, I would love to have seen a live two tour, but, you know, they were playing songs from tours that I didn't get to see. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that kicked my ass. I mean, I was a whole other human being when they were, you know, when they were playing the show. I was like, oh, my God, this is so great. And it was a long set. It was great. Yeah, I think they played for over two hours. Um, they dropped the the solos, which pissed off Eric Carr. Which, to yeah. be fair, his his drum solo was always a major part of Kiss shows up until that point. Um, I took a girl to the show who was like a USC sorority girl friend of mine who didn't know Kiss from Adam, and I would you know. So it was cool because I got to see the show through her eyes, and she wow. loved it. Like she got it. She was like, now I see why you love this band so much, you know, and that just made me so proud of the band and what they were capable of. Where'd you see that show, David? Uh, Long Beach Arena. Um, let's see. I'm not, I don't remember the exact date. I have to look up. I was, at, I was the reason I asked, I was at that show. Oh, cool. Okay. Nice. And, and, and to continue that though, I, you know, I did, I grew up in the, I saw Kiss. I saw them in 1976 Anaheim Stadium. Wow. I saw them all three nights at the LA Forum when they recorded a live two. I was front row and center at Magic Mountain. I saw them the opening night of the Dynasty Tour, Lakeland, Florida, June 15th, 1979. That can go on from there. By the time Creatures came around, it it started to, other than the handful, you knew the cadence of the band, right? Mm -hmm. I knew that they'd play a handful of new songs and there would be the staples. There'd be Shout It Out Loud, Rock and Roll Night, Black Diamond, Detroit Rock City. But as the 80s progressed and they started to kind of shed that 70s skin, for lack of a better way to put it, mm-hmm. and they really relied on Fits Like a Glove and I Still Love You beating that into the, the ground the way they did. <laughs> yes. what, what this tour meant to me, it, the excitement that I felt at that show that you and I had seen, what, it, was, it, 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 it reignited me, the exuberance I had as a young fan. Because when I walked out of there, I didn't, because that was pre, really pre-internet and all that. Mm-hmm. I walked out of there surprised and excited. Like, wow, they played that and they played that. And oh my God, they actually brought that back. And there was an energy to the band that I hadn't really seen and, and seemed like forever at that point. It was certainly night and day mm-hmm. from the tour that I had seen at the Thomas and Mack Center on the Crazy Nights tour. Yeah. And it really relit the fire of, as a fan of the live version of Kiss that I had not felt in a number of years, going back to those magical years as a young fan in the 70s. Yeah, you know, to that point too, you know, I remember being exhausted from the Crazy Night show because it just seemed so draining in a way. Like the, the, the set was just like dragged and they were playing some songs I didn't want to hear, whereas they're playing t- 
twice as long on the Hot in the Shade tour. And I was extremely excited and energetic and involved. I was engaged, you know, whereas Crazy Nights, I thought, what, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, even the dramatic opening where they come out and you just see their silhouettes and they have the lasers behind them and, the, and the, with the Sphinx and stuff. I thought that was cool. That was something we hadn't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the most memorable thing about Crazy Nights to me was had nothing to do with the show. It was kind of like, <laughs> I, you know, like we ran uh, in, we rented a hotel room and, you know, with like me and uh, Casey and Danny Blumenfeld and ran into some female fans of, of, of the band and ended up having a little bit of a crazy night ourselves. So, you know, like <laughs> that, that to me is the most memorable thing about that show. Yeah. Yeah. But thank goodness too, that this might've been, you know, the segue into, you know, what they did with the, you know, the revenge tour and, Later, the reunion tour. I mean, you know, this was like the establishment moment. Like, okay, this is what people really expect of Kiss. And if that's what you want, then you're going to get that. And thank goodness that this happened. Absolutely. Well, can I just tie this into with, uh, you know, we've mentioned other bands like Motley Crue and, you know, Theater of Pain and, you know, how around the time when, you know, uh, there was the accident with Vince Neil and Razzle from Hanoi Rocks, you know, they mentioned the thing about, you know, don't drink and drive or whatever. But, you know, on the liner notes of this record, they get into the whole thing at the very end about how, you know, we want you around to enjoy the party and here's how. And they get into the whole thing about the facts about AIDS. You yes, know, whole, I remember that. Yeah. That was like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. It's a whole new ballgame in terms of, you know, lifestyles. And, you know, I mean, you know, what I'm trying to say, is it's cool that they, they put that on the record. You know, that, that was something they cared about enough to address. For sure, for sure, yeah. I mean, it's funny that they, they put that on one album and then sort of dropped it, but yeah. Well, yeah. I wonder yeah. if that was a push by the record company. Are there any other record, com you know, anybody have any of those albums from? Uh, well, the, the, well the, easiest thing would have to, the, the easiest thing would have been to not do anything and not say anything about it. You know, it takes balls yeah, to, you know, to sort of bring that up in a way, for guts. Absolutely, yeah. But also too in the packaging, I want to point out a few things as well. I don't have the CD here, but if you have the CD version, the CD's in my car, sorry, I was listening today. Um, when you take out the CD and you look at it, essentially the idea was if you look at the CD, you're seeing yourself in the image of the eyeglasses, or the sunglasses of, of the Sphinx. Uh huh. So it reflects your face. Um, but also too, apparently the, the sunglasses were a prop that were designed for the stage show, but were, weren't used. Ah, so interesting. There was some, um, you know, tech guy that was involved with the, sh the tour, and I guess he has the, the sunglasses in his garage somewhere, uh, but they, <laughs> they, they weren't used. They were designed, but you know, it didn't look right, and they, they you know, exited from the, from the set list or from the, you know, the, the props. So right, because the whole concept being it's so hot that Leonard the Sphinx himself must wear sunglasses, and then the band's wearing sunglasses on the back, and then the whole thing's an anagram for hits because it's hot in the shade hot in the shade yes. yeah 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 not and it's not not yeah but you know which is you know, yeah which is which is hotter than uh 700 degrees fahrenheit and hotter than uh, 99 in the shade from bon jovi yeah. right so you know <laughs> right right which what was uh 7100 degrees fahrenheit was the, the the melting point of rock was was the concept there right? yes okay. yes <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Uh, Great discussion, guys. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So uh, before we go, uh, you guys have some songs you want to play? Uh, keep it up with Johnny Blowtorch.
stay on the clause theme and I want to go with a song called Devil of Choice.
And then Dave, I know you're a songwriter. If you have any original material you want to play, send it, send it to me and we'll put it on the show too. Okay, sounds good. All right. Awesome. Cool. And then I'm going to go with a Dame Fortune song called A Special Place. How does it taste when you eat the soul? When you suck her life, you kill her slow. When you rip and pick at the scars in her past, do you think guys next week for an in-depth look at kiss revenge <laughs>